0: As Nick brought his testimony, and obviously I write the schedule out, but I really am not that clever in orchestrating things. Somehow, the passage of scripture that we're on in 1 Corinthians is exactly what Nick preached. And that doesn't happen very often. And so I just look at it, and what we're going to be looking at here, we are obviously continuing our 1 Corinthians series, but this passage that we're about to look at today is really quite a difficult passage to look at, okay? It's Paul essentially with... A very sarcastic tone, probably the most sarcasm you're ever going to see in the Bible, I think anywhere, as he speaks to the Corinthians, as he rebukes them, essentially. Um, We obviously know about the Corinthian church, there's all sorts going on there. Paul founded it, he was there for about 18 months, and um, there's incest, there's issues on um, sexual relations going on in the church, there's people suing each other. Um, it's in a city very much like Liverpool, a port town, and um, so there's a lot of similarities for us to learn from, and yet Paul loved this church, and that's so important to remember as we look at this passage today in the context of his tone as well, just to remember that Paul was a father to this church, and um, he loved it, and he wanted to bring rebuke when it needs to be brought. Um, so this is, it's quite a, it's one of those times where you get given that passage and you think, why did I get that passage? You know, and you're, you're looking at a way around this passage. I don't bring this in a really nice, fluffy way. And uh, it just never works out like that, does it? And um, it's one of those where, because Nick bought this testimony, it just gave me such confidence. God has a message for us today. So we're going to read it if you want to turn to so it. It's 1 Corinthians 4. <clears throat> it's 8 to 14. <clears throat> Already, you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign, and without us. Oh, how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like those condemned to die in the arena, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this, not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. You can tell this passage is quite a difficult one. There's some very strong language in there. Um, And to be honest, it's a really misunderstood passage in the Bible. Um, But really what we're doing here We'll soon see from next week that Paul changes tack. He starts to address some of the issues in the church. But this is still part of this same address that he's addressing from the beginning. They've got issues of unity. We've seen them following and deciding who they're following, which leader they want to follow. And really what Paul has been trying to um, engage them on and trying to help them to understand is issues around this disunity that they've been, um, they've been squabbling between themselves He's addressed key things of a misunderstanding of the gospel, a misunderstanding of the grace of God. And here, towards the end of chapter 4, we've seen a little bit as Matt brought, you know, actually what does a Christian look like, what are some of the clothes that we need to take off, and what are some of the clothes that we put back on. He is looking at the Corinthians' misunderstanding of what the Christian life looks like. What Paul's addressing here, to be honest, as we start to look at it, is rife throughout the whole church uh, in the world today. And we know that Paul does not mince his words. We've seen it many times. And he drives a big point home here as he uses sarcasm in it. And um, the fancy term for what he's addressing here that we've used in theological circles, if you want to know it, is something called over-realized eschatology there's the fancy theological term for you. And um, it's trying to understand the backdrop of what was going on, okay? What was the mindset within the Christian church, within the Corinthians that they had? And you know, they had some views about what the Christian life should look like based on the resurrection of Christ, based on the death, the resurrection, the way he lived. And you know what? Like many ideas today, a lot of their the ideas were actually correct. They were good truths, but actually over meant they took it too far, okay, in, in view of the end times, in view of what life should look like now. And I was just thinking about this, and I read on the news yesterday that <clears throat> the Euro Millions, 24 million pound lottery is being claimed by somebody in the UK, um, and I don't know, here around a church, do do you ever get those times where you start thinking, what would my life look like if I won the lottery? Anyone do that? Is it just me? Yeah? Shame on me. (coughs) What would my life look like if I won 24 million pounds? And I think obviously in our society actually, we see money as the answer to everything, don't we? We see that having this amount of money would give you the perfect life. (coughs) Well, I don't know if we would, but... I do apologize for the cold today, Jack is absolutely right, these heaters are not working. So if at any point you want to get up and just do a bit of a turn or a dance, then feel free. But um, yeah, you know, we'd have the nice car, we'd have the nice house, we'd be able to go out and spend on whatever we wanted without worrying about our bank balance, it's always there. And actually, we see this as the big answer to all of our problems. Actually, our life would be perfect. What possible problems could I have with all that money? And yet, the reality is, when you look at stories from uh, lottery winners, it creates a whole set of new problems, having this money. It creates relational problems over family. Hold on, are you not giving me some of this money? You should be sharing this money. The divorce rates within couples who win this money are huge. And so we think that the answer, what life will look like once we win this lottery, is that life is going to be just perfect. And the reality is it's not. And actually for the Corinthians, they had a similar issue. They felt like because Jesus has won the victory against sin and death, that they were conquerors in life. And you know what? That's true. We're told it. We are conquerors in life. But they were obsessed around this idea of reigning in life, which Paul talks about, which is right there in the Bible. Uh, But the reality is they took it too far. They were suggesting that life was always going to be easy. Okay? Actually choosing Jesus Christ meant that life was going to be easy. God's kingdom had come, and now we were kings reigning in life. And our expectation for the Christian life should be one of success because we're Christ's it should be riches because we get all of Christ's riches and it should be no sickness that was the signs of someone who was really truly living their life for Christ and we're just going to look at what Paul does how he addresses this issue in the church Obviously we read verse 8, already you have all you want, already you have become rich, you have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. Their understanding was that they were kings, they were conquerors, which is, as I said, there's lots of truths in there. We can reign in life. We are conquerors through Christ's victory. But maybe the riches that they were talking about and the successes that they were talking about aren't the type of riches that Christ will give us. And really, the church that they were cultivating is one that we see across the world. It's a church promoting a health and wealth gospel, a prosperity gospel to the extreme. And you know, I believe that this is one of the most damaging things to have hit the church um, on the face of the earth today, because it has so many implications, it has so many abuses about it, and um, I don't have time really to go into the whole health and wealth gospel and some of the issues there or the direct struggles, but I know for leadership, and Paul's addressing specifically leadership here, um, what it meant is that the people that you responded to, the people that the Corinthians wanted to follow were those that they saw who were successful. Those who were wealthy because God was blessing them with his riches. Those who were in really good health, who were seeing breakthrough in every circumstance and really who never struggled with any suffering or pain or sickness Obviously, when we look at Paul's life, the apostle who planted that church, actually we see something totally different, don't we? We see a man who was regularly beaten, regularly imprisoned. He suffered from sickness. He had to work hard, actually working hard in his job as well as serving the church, in his tent making, whatever that career was. And you know, even with the church today, as I think about this very point, there are lots of ways that it's manifested itself, even within the charismatic circles, within the evangelical church. So sometimes we look at it and we think, oh, it's the African nations. They're obviously preaching a health and wealth gospel. But we're okay here. But I want to say it seeps in all over the place. I know of churches where, and if we're looking specifically at leadership, actually there's an expectation uh, that that leader has to be on top form at all times. You know, if they struggle in their walk with God, there's ever points where they're not totally passionate, they get pulled out of their work. And that happens in churches today. I know of it happening about six months ago to a friend's church. And the problem that it creates is it creates a lack of accountability. Because we don't want to show how we're actually feeling. We don't want to show that actually there's some struggles in our lives. Because we can't. So we have to show this facade that everything's great. Everything's going well. Just in case they spot a chink and you're out. And that comes right back to this very point here. It's a manifestation really of this health and wealth gospel. And so it's seeped into the church In all sorts of areas. And what the Corinthians had done is they put so much emphasis on Christ's victory that they'd rejected some really important points of the gospel. They'd rejected the suffering servant, Jesus, the trials and the pain that he faced. And that the Bible says that we too can expect to face. Just as Nick read out, as I say, Nick essentially preached for me this morning. His message is the same message as I'm bringing. And it's as if Paul is saying in this passage at the beginning, wow, you clever, rich, powerful Corinthians. Oh, let me imitate your lives because you just reach perfection and you have no worries at all in life. The teaching portrays and advocates just very comfortable lives. As I said, we never get ill. Everything we touch turns to gold. We're all sort of Josephs, you know, rising up the ladder to be, to be prime minister. We have no difficulties parent or kids, parenting our kids. We're successful in every area of life. We're wealthy all the time because we're conquerors reigning in the resurrection of Christ. And we have no problems. And I don't know about you, but that is not what my life looks like. Well, I do know, for for, for most of you, that is not what your lives look like either. You know, it's a good question, is sarcasm wrong? Because Paul's using immense sarcasm here. Actually, there are points when he's driving home a message, it's got to be correct. He's using extreme sarcasm in this. And so I want to ask firstly, what do we think the Christian life looks like? Do we think it looks like no suffering, no illness, much wealth? Jesus and Paul didn't. And he says, is it white suits or is it rags? So that's my first question to you as a church, as we look at this passage, what is our expectation of the Christian life? The second thing I want to look at, you can flick through all those, Josh, (coughs) is contrast in lives. We're used to Paul, he, he loves using contrast, doesn't he? And so he contrasts, Um, wisdom and foolishness of the world Um, and here he uses another contrast to, to again bring his point right home and again he's looking at the lifestyles that they would say their lives look like and what his life looks like so he says for you guys you're reigning in life you're kings and queens and yet for him he says we're condemned to die He's a convict. He's sentenced to death. He has no rights and no privileges. He's died in Christ. He says, you're wealthy rulers. You're rich. And for him, he says, I'm a spectacle. A spectacle in the arena. And we know from those days, he's referring back to one of the Roman sports, they were in the arenas. They would bring out their gladiators. And then at the end of the show, they would bring out the Christians. And these Christians were put into the arena with wild animals and they were ripped apart. They were the spectacle. They were the end of the show. It was the fireworks. It was, it was a public humiliation. He says, you guys are wise. And yet, we're just fools. He says, you guys are strong. And yet, we're just weak. And you guys are honoured, and we're dishonoured. We're of disrepute. <clears throat> Matt looked at, last week, different issues in our lives, of pride. Um, and here, I just want us to look at this list and say, what do our lives look like? Okay, which list do our lives look most like? Does it look like how the Corinthian church describes themselves, or does it look more like Paul's description of his life? As Nick said, often I think we can present the gospel as if it solves all of our problems in an instant. And you know, this is true in the long term. We know that, don't we? Actually, we've been rescued out of death to spend eternity with Jesus, where there will be no sickness, No sorrow. There'll be great joy. But in the now, his kingdom has come and yet it's not fully come. The Bible actually warns us that there will be huge suffering for us as a people. In fact, Jesus himself professed in Matthew 10, you will be hated by everyone because of me. That's what Jesus tells us. Where to expect you're going to be hated. Do you know, I'm not saying <clears throat> that unless our lives look like this, that we're not living for Jesus, but what I am saying is if that our expectation is of a nice, cozy, successful life, because Jesus is obviously protecting us from all trials and dangers and suffering, then we've misunderstood what Jesus has promised us. We've misunderstood the life that he has called us to lead. Thirdly, <coughs> I'm say it's a scary calling. Paul reads this, he says, to this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth. The garbage of the world right up to this moment. <clears throat> Do you know Paul's description of his life is just so clear here, isn't it? Strong language. Life seems to be anything but easy for the apostle Paul. Do you know he wasn't traveling business class as he went around on ships. He's not sitting there thinking, it's great being an apostle. Man, I just want to keep traveling around churches because I get that business class. It's all paid for. Actually, he worked hard with his hands to be able to afford to go to the churches. He's probably sitting in the stern of the ship, very uncomfortable journeys. We know, almost shipwrecked. Travelling in those days was extremely dangerous. You know, the Romans themselves, they would go to the sea god and they would offer uh, the sea god all sorts of things before they travelled. Travelling was dangerous. Do you know, we had to work essentially in a full-time job to support what God had called him to. He was committed to doing that as he served other churches. <coughs> and you know, we know, just by how much he's written, but he was an extremely busy man. Um, he was called cool to plant many churches. And that came with a cost. And I want to say to us as a church, time and energy <coughs> are constantly being pushed. And I expect that is probably a lot of our journeys. We've known times when we just feel far too busy. And I'm not saying that busyness is good, but there's something good about the calling that God has called us to and us working hard. Paul was not afraid of hard work. Okay, but it is costly. If I'm honest, for Fatou and I, we look around, we see some of our non-Christian friends here in Liverpool, and there's a cost. We cannot keep up with just seeing these guys all the time, because we are committed to serving this city in the local church. And so I think for a lot of our non-Christians, they can't understand why we're so busy. Why is it that you're so busy? What What are you doing? Actually, God has called us to build community together as a church. He's called us to reach out to this city, to the nations. And that comes with a cost. So it's a scary calling verses 12 to 13, we see that insults and abuse were part of the package for this Christian life for Paul. He was reviled, he was persecuted, he was slandered, he was the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. Paul is telling us here what the Christian life for him looks like, his expectations and his experience of the Christian walk. The scum of the earth, you thought about where that phrase comes from? You're the scum of the earth. That's how Paul describes our lives. The scum is the froth off a liquid. I don't know if you know that. It's the frothy bit and you throw it away. We're the scum, we're the rubbish, rubbish. You know what's difficult? Is this imagery, imagery to it's hard when we contrast that expectation with what the Corinthians are seeing as kings reigning in victory successful, wealthy. Paul's contrast is extreme to this image. Many of you will have heard of Brother Yun. He's been to Liverpool and he stayed at Jack and Sheila's house. He tells some stories and actually he tells a story of himself. I I think he fasted food and water for 74 days. I know that sounds impossible because we're told that if you live without water for three days... You will die. But there were people in the prison cells who were there who would, would acknowledge this and say, no, God supernaturally helped him in that. And in this time we read of this, he's a, he's a Chinese guy who was essentially seeing a lot's happening in the gospel, and he was imprisoned. And he received lots of beatings, he was tortured. As, he, as you read The Heavenly Man, okay, that's his book, you will see just, just the amazing things he's gone through. Some of the things, I mean, in that prison cell were just horrific. I don't even want to mention them at the front. Um, But the way that he was tortured, the way he was treated, he truly, if you look at what the scum of the earth is about and you see how he was treated, we start to understand what Paul may be talking about here. And yet, we also see the power of God in his life. And he had these amazing power encounters one time The prison cells just opened up and he was able to walk out and walk past prison guards who couldn't see him. Now we know from the Bible in Acts that this is a reality, don't we? God does this and he still does it today. And um, Brother Jung was asked, man, what do you think the Western world needs to see this sort of power in these countries? And he had one answer. And he says, suffering. Suffering. There's nothing like suffering that brings the power of God into our lives. As we cry out to him. As we become totally dependent on him to change circumstances, to come through. It's the next suffering community. Verse 14, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Do you know, this wasn't written for the Corinthians to feel sorry for Paul. He wasn't writing it in that context. Guys, come on, look at my life. Just pass some money over. It'll be okay. He didn't write it in that context. He was warning them. It was a warning of what the Christian life should look like. And he wants us to imitate him. He wants us to imitate Christ, who suffered tremendously. And you know what? He expects us to live victorious lives. That is a truth that the Corinthians had right. But he wants us to live suffering victorious lives. You know, as we look at this, it's not a great sales pitch, is it? Come and follow Jesus. You can expect to be the scum of the earth. Who really wants to imitate that? Who wants to imitate suffering? Come on. It's Valentine's Day, so I thought I'd tell a little story about St. Valentino. Who knows about him? Anyone know his story? That Tom it's on Facebook. There we go. Well done. That's why he's such a charmer, is he? Yeah. So let me tell you a little bit about him because we're celebrating it today. This was the third century, and um, Claudius the Second was reigning at that time, and um, essentially he prohibited marriage amongst the young. He introduced a law that would stop the young from getting married. And this was based on the hypothesis that unmarried soldiers fought better than married soldiers. Because married soldiers might be afraid of what might happen to them or their wives or their families if they were to die. So he decided, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to ban marriage outright. And then I'll have soldiers who can sleep around but they don't have that committed, loving relationship. And um, Valentino, the, the, the priest at that time, he obviously didn't like this. He knew God's desire and heart for marriage. So he decided he was going to start marrying young couples in secret. And so that's what he did. But he was eventually caught, and he was imprisoned, and he was tortured for performing marriage ceremonies against the command of Emperor Claudius and while in prison there was a man there who was to judge him in line with the Roman law Um, and he was called Asterius and this man's daughter was blind and what the stories go is that Valentino prayed for this man's daughter and she was healed and as a result Asterius came to Christ and um In 269 AD, Valentine was sentenced to a three-part execution of a beating, a stoning, and finally decapitation. And this was all because of his stance for Christian marriage. And the story goes, his last words that he wrote was in a note to Asterius' daughter. And so that's why we have cards that we give with our, our love notes. But he basically said he said, from Valentine. And so that's where Valentine's Day comes from. Um, But the guy who explains his story, Father O'Gara, who's a priest today, he says, um, to him, what he means is, the beauty of Valentine, is that there comes a time when you have to lay your life upon the line for what you believe. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, he was able to do that even to the point of death. So here we are celebrating Valentine's, a man who was martyred because he stood for something. He stood for Christian marriage. And he wasn't prepared to allow the king to stop marriage. And so I want to ask a question. Paul is talking about what the Christian life should look like. Actually, there should be suffering. The Bible promises it. So what does that mean? How do we imitate suffering? Why should we want to imitate suffering? And I want to just mention four quick things. I want to say firstly, suffering exalts Jesus. Because if we're honest, he is the only one that it would be worth suffering for. He's the only one worthy of it. He is the one who took on the ultimate suffering. Our sin the full anger of God was poured out on him. He was nailed to the cross, a crown of thorn on his head. He went through great suffering for you and I. And so firstly, why should we suffer? Because it exalts him. Secondly, I want to say it shows the rest of the world how truly satisfying Jesus is to us. Okay? It tells the unbeliever... How worthwhile it is to live for Christ. It shows your love and your desire for him alone. And it's attractive to the world. Thirdly, suffering matures us. I think Nick mentioned this one. Romans 5, 3 to 4. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Suffering matures our faith. Brother Yun was talking about suffering being the tool to see God's power. Actually, as God matures us, this is what he creates. A people who know how to call on his name. A people who expect him to come in power and to change circumstances. Finally, I want to say suffering prepares us to comfort others around us. Okay, we can be very empathetic. But we're able to look at them and say, yeah, I've been there. Let me me help you. Let me show you how to cling to God. Let me show you how to put your trust in him. Let me show you what verses in the Bible really help me at this time. Let me show you how to fight and to stand firm when the battle comes. So what do we do about this as a church? The fact that Paul is essentially saying that we should have an expectation for us as a community to suffer. Do you know what I'm not saying is that we need to go out and create needless pain for ourselves. I'm not advocating going out and let's just hurt ourselves because that's just masochism. Okay? At the same time, I don't think we should be riding or or hiding behind the concept that we don't want to just suffer for the sake of suffering. Let's just live the nice comfort life and if something comes along, then, then we'll handle it. I think there's something of choosing to suffer for the right things. And I was thinking, how do I bring this one? This one's a really difficult point to apply. And so I wanted to just look at two stories that are in the public domain very recently. Firstly, we have this family. Who knows who these guys are? The bakery bakery in Northern Ireland. This is the Asher Baking Company. And essentially, they were taken to court because they wouldn't bake a cake uh, with a certain slogan on it uh, against homosexuality. Here's a couple who, because of their faith, they, had, they wanted to stand firm and stand strong. And actually they have taken, they've suffered, haven't they? They've been in that public domain. Their bakery has suffered. Their lives, the stress of what they've had to cope with, go into court. They've been slandered. They've been reviled. They, lots of people would see them as the scum of the earth because they took a stand for something they believed in, and they wouldn't move on it. Secondly, very recent, who's this guy? Dan Walker. Got Tim back for his quiz skills, look at that. (laughs) (coughs) Dan Walker. uh, This guy obviously is a presenter, and um, he's just got a few new jobs in the presenting world, and an article came out in The Telegraph which was essentially saying, how can he present the news when he's a Christian? Surely he can't present it with truth because what he believes is a whole load of rubbish. That's what the media have portrayed about this man because of his faith, because he believes in a God. How can he actually genuinely present truth to the nation? News about what's going on, and obviously, he's come back and he said, I think I can present the news perfectly fine. I think the football perfectly fine. My face protect me doing that. Maybe we're scared of presenting the true gospel because it's offensive and people will react. Maybe we need to be stepping out more and putting ourselves in that line of fire when it comes to proclaiming who he is. Do you know, as we look at Paul in his life and the way that he did his missionary journeys, we see clearly how he often entered a very hostile area and he would receive trials and persecution, but he was committed, wasn't he, to establishing a Christ-centered community of people. But often we see that once things were established, once he'd got that community established and it was safe, he'd move to the next place of hostility and rebuke. Now, I'm not saying we all have to keep moving on as soon as we're not receiving that hostility. We're actually in a a city that can be hostile towards the gospel. And I believe God has called myself to Liverpool for some good length of time to see things established here, to see his church, and to see church plants here in Liverpool. But I want to say this. Ultimately, suffering... Is for our joy. Psalm 126, split it up, Josh, verse 5 Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Do you know we're not called as Freedom Church to become a nice middle class church? Okay, we've got a long way to go because we're quite middle class, aren't we? We're called to build something very different. We're called to build a multicultural. Diverse church that maybe looks more like the Corinthian church with loads of problems, um, but one that imitates Christ is transformed by Him. Do you know the call to follow Christ is not easy. It's not the easy way. It's not the easy option. There is a cost, and it carries a weight for all of us. And I just want to pray as I end now for whatever sufferings that you are going through at this moment in time, for where you find that actually the trials seem to be overwhelming, I want to pray that we can trust, just as Paul trusted in his Savior, that we can also trust him to help us to stand firm. Maybe the resolution to some of these trials are far off, and therefore there's a battle in place here. Maybe for some of you who aren't receiving any of that, you know areas that you need to step into. Areas where actually you're fudging it or maybe you're just too scared to actually talk about your faith. I want to pray for the Holy Spirit to bring boldness to step into that, to step into sharing the true gospel.